Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to a special five-part series I am running on a recent white paper released by SAI Global entitled Predicting Risk, a Strategic Culture Framework for the C-Suite. This white paper was authored by Katerina Volgarella, and over the next five podcast episodes, I visit with her on various topics relating to this white paper. In episode one, we introduce the strategic cultural framework. In episode two, we consider what the board and C-suite need to know about ethical risk. In episode three, we consider the differences between espoused ethics and actual goals of an organization. In episode four, we use the cultural framework to take a look at the ethical failures of Wells Fargo and their fraudulent account scandal. In our concluding episode five, we take a look at the ins and outs of ethical reasoning and take a look into the future. It will be a fascinating exploration for you. At the end of the five podcast series, you will be able to utilize the strategic cultural framework to help your organization measure not only what it espouses, but is it actually doing that in practice. In each episode, I link to the white paper itself so you can take a look at it and use it going forward. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. This special five-part series on predicting risk, a strategic cultural framework for the C-suite, a white paper by SAI Global, is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again for part two of my five-part exploration of the SAI I Global White Paper, Predicting Risk, a Strategic Cultural Framework for the C-Suite. I'm joined by Katerina Volgarella, the Cultural Architect and Ethics Advisor in collaboration with SAI Global, who wrote the report. And today we're going to talk about the two things C-Suites and boards need to know about ethical risk. So Katerina, uh, welcome. And uh, once again, thank you for taking the time to visit with me today. Hi, Tom. It's great to be back on, and it's great to be able to continue a conversation. So we introduced, uh, in part one, we introduced the framework, but I was wondering if you might be able to expand upon your opening remarks and your introduction about what the framework is and really how it moved to how does the framework help in both protecting, excuse me, predicting risks and helping to organize ethical dilemmas that companies can then address. Um, yes, um, I went on. So um, we talked about how the framework uh, is really a, a model uh, for maximum impact for organizations uh, that wish to really manage uh, risk and ethical performance uh, proactively. And I uh, brought up uh, the fact that um, um, the framework highlights two uh, dimensions of uh, culture. Uh, on the one hand, we ought to look at uh, whether your organization is delegating uh, dilemmas. So when the culture leaves dilemmas unaddressed, uh, people are more likely to uh, face difficult trade-offs uh, and make poor decisions. Uh, so delegation of uh, ethical uh, uh, dilemmas uh, uh, creates risk. 
unwanted risk. On the other hand, uh, we also need to look at uh, whether the organization is uh, creating adequate ethical capacity. And as I said before, ethical capacity has to do with, uh, uh, you know, those resources, those practices, you know, that sort of built-in resilience uh, that helps people uh, deal with ethical uh, challenges uh, successfully. Now, we believe that um, uh, organizations really should use the framework um, uh, to create a realistic risk profile. Uh, it's critical um, in just uh, to um, in order to to do that. It's, it's critical to look at all the determinants. Uh, um, that the framework uh, lays out. There are, you know, six determinants, uh, uh, three per dimension. Um, and if you think about it, uh, the framework uh, forces organizations to look at the trade-offs uh, people are dealing with, uh, um, you know, day in and day out, and the implications of those trade-offs. And at the same time, it's saying, you know, just uh, look at the, the capacity uh, that you have internally, uh, because uh, that capacity is uh, going to help you sort of predict how people will respond to ethical uh, challenges. So let me give you an example, right? Let's assume we both work for ACME. And one of ACME's values uh, is safety. Uh, so ACME trains uh, uh, its employees on safety procedures and uh, tells us uh, that safety matters. Now, ACME also puts a great deal of emphasis on cost effectiveness. It prides itself for running things lean and fast. Let's say that's you know how they put it. Now, safety and cost effectiveness do not have to butt heads all the time. Uh, but if there is too much emphasis on cost effectiveness, uh, safety will eventually uh, suffer. If ACME uh, has never looked at the relationship between safety and cost effectiveness, um, if it doesn't understand the norms and expectations around safety and cost effectiveness, uh, it faces um, a tangible risk. It faces the risk that people will you know, may downplay safety to save uh, the company money. Uh, so the this is where the, the framework comes in. It becomes incredibly helpful uh, for an organization like ACME, uh, you know, because it's going to be sort of the, uh, the lens through which uh, ACME can garner all the insights it needs to fully understand uh, the dynamics that I just described and to recalibrate those very dynamics so, so as to uh, mitigate uh, risk and uh, increase ethical performance. So I was wondering if you might be able to go through some of the main determinants and give us a highlight of those. Uh, absolutely. Um, so delegation of ethical dilemmas depends on whether the things an organization values conflict with each other. Uh, in, in essence, it has to do with competing priorities uh, and the pressure that originates uh, from them. I want to point out an interesting fact. Uh, research has shown that people can protect uh, themselves from ex explicit requests uh, to engage in uh, unethical behavior, but uh, they tend to disengage morally uh, when they are exposed to pressure. So if we start asking people 
to uh, reconcile uh, impossible priorities, in other words, uh, to fit a square peg in a round hole, uh, that will uh, cause them to disengage morally. And so keeping that in mind, if we want to understand how the culture of the organization uh, creates a delegation of ethical di dilemmas, we need to look at the determinants uh, that create uh, that type of incoherence and pressure. Uh, first of all, asking people to abide by competing principles of conduct um, is a, a key source, uh, a key determinant of that incoherence, right? Uh, but it's not just principles of conduct. Um, we also need to look at how leaders and managers behave and use their power. Uh, this is, uh, you know, uh, the way leadership and power are exercised um, um, is a critical determinant because leaders and managers can influence priorities. They can reinforce certain principles uh, while downplaying uh, other uh, principles. Uh, they can also affect the credibility of ethical principles uh, by uh, engaging in, in abusive conduct, um, which is a way, in other words, to, you know, legitimize impropriety. So, um, you know, th that is why leadership and power um, are so critical. The last uh, culture determinant that shapes delegation of ethical dilemmas has to do with the uh, implicit and explicit incentives uh, the organization uses to reinforce behavior. Uh, if people are at ACME, going, going back to the example, are rewarded for running things uh, within budget at the cost even of downplaying uh, safety, uh, they may end up just thinking, okay, let's focus on cost effectiveness first. If we can also practice safety, that is great, but it's gonna be a second tier uh, consideration uh, in the end. Now, if we look at ethical capacity, uh, the first uh, thing to look at is ethical ownership, and which has to do with the responsibilities and goals that have been created around ethics and uh, who those responsibilities and goals uh, have been assigned to. Uh, we also want to think in terms of how ethics are being framed and talked about. That is also key to uh, uh, ethical ownership. The second determinant of ethical capacity is ethical reasoning, which refers to the conditions that make it possible for people to engage in sound reasoning. So training and all you know, the resources that are used uh, to create awareness uh, are important. But ethical reasoning is also about certain conditions that people experience in the work environment. So if I have to choose, for example, between um, delivering something on time and executing a safety procedure, uh, what's happening around me? You know, what type of social pressures uh, are affecting me as I make that decision? Will I think that, uh, you know, just um, there are, you know, negative consequences attached to doing one thing versus versus the other? Will I you know, think that most people around me may skip um, um, you know, the safety procedure if uh, they find themselves in the same situation? All those considerations are going to have an impact. 
are going to create a certain type of bias. That's why, you know, the social, you know, climate, the social environment in which we operate is so uh, critical. Finally, uh, ethical capacity depends on ethical voice, uh, which is the extent to which people have access to adequate resources to report, share, and speak out while feeling in control of the process they engage in to report, share, and speak out. So, Katarina, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but I wanted to thank you for this fascinating discussion today, and I hope our listeners will join us for part three, where we actually get into bridging the gap between values and what an organization says their values are and the tension that arises from this. So, as always, thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. It was a pleasure. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. I hope you've enjoyed this episode in my special five-part series on the SAI Global White Paper entitled Predicting Risk, a Strategic Cultural Framework for the C-Suite, and my visit with the white paper's author, Katerina Bulgarella. I hope you'll join us again for our next episode. This podcast series is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.